this. This is a, a lecture that I've worked on for many years, just trying to get it together in my head and put the pieces together in a useful way. We'll see how it goes. But the title of this is A Dagger in the Back. A Dagger in the Back, or Expositional Preaching, colon, more than a matter of style. Is there anywhere to get this stuff in print? Um, no? Yeah, I can share some of it. I can share it with you, sure. Absolutely. Just one. Yes, because there's going to be some quotes in here that you're not going to be able to write down. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you asked that because here's the way I want you to listen to this. Write down whatever you want, but there's a gist that I want you to get, right? And I'm going to come at it. The reason it's so painstaking is because it is one of the areas where independent Baptists especially are so entrenched against what they should be for. And that's not very often. I'm an independent Baptist. I love them. I believe in, in what we are and what we've done through the years. But this is one area where we've been wrong. And uh, the way we think, we're so black and white and extreme about everything. If we say something is wrong, then that means everything that has every, anything to do with anything we did in that area must be bad. And that's reprehensible to consider. So we can't accept the fact that we were wrong. Does that make sense? Like a guy said to my buddy one day, we were having a conversation about doctrine. He said, you tell me I've been preaching it wrong for 30 years? And he said, well, first of all, I didn't know we were talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were talking about the Bible. But yeah. I mean, do you honestly think that you're going to reach a point as a, a, in your preaching ministry as a human being where you're going to have it all down? Is that sarcasm? No, that's actually <laughs> literal. <laughs> yeah. All right. So a dagger in the back, expositional preaching, more than a matter of style. Several years ago, five years ago now, I began to collect every significant book on the subject of preaching that I could find. Uh, and I've still got a long way to go on this, but it's, this collection's getting to be uh, formidable. All right. It's exciting. And in that effort, I came across a book more recently, published in 1957, titled The Way to Biblical Preaching. Uh, it was written by the Union Theological Seminary professor of New Testament and the pastor of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church of Dallas. Now that's a pretty fancy business right there, all right? <laughs> His name was Donald G. Miller. And uh, as it turns out, he was quite conservative. And just the title of the book begged consideration, right? The Way to Biblical Preaching. So I ordered this book, <clears throat> and right away he says this. Someone has remarked that if Protestantism ever dies with a dagger in its back, the dagger will be the Protestant sermon. Did you hear that? Let me read it a different way. Someone has remarked that if the independent Baptists ever die with a dagger in their back, the dagger will be the independent Baptist sermon. Do I need to read that again? <laughs> 
recently it's been popularized to, or there have been some popular anonymous Twitter accounts that came up just to ridicule independent Baptist preaching. And I follow these because to me, to block them is weak. That's the way I see it. And so, occasionally I think these people are being unfair. A lot of these people that are being ridiculed on these posts are friends of mine. And there are times when I think, come on now, this guy's joking around. He, he doesn't think this is profound. He, he's, it's a joke. It's a, in the midst of a sermon. Right? If John MacArthur told the same joke, you'd all be rolling on the floor. <laughs> you're, you're, you're against it just because you're against this guy. Uh, one of my closest friends, Jim Alter from Sydney, Ohio, who is, who is one of the best defenders of the King James Bible I've ever heard. And he was recently posted on, one of, on a bad preacher clip thing, is what it was. And all he's doing in the clip is reading a quote from a 19th century scholar about textual criticism. That's all he's doing is reading what that guy said. I can't figure out to this day how that's bad preaching. But if you're pro King James only, then everything you say is bad. All right, now that's unfair. Okay? That's ridiculous. And to be honest with you, who cares? But there's a lot of stuff on those accounts that are very bad examples of preachers behaving horribly in the pulpit. No question about it. I've seen example after example after example, and so have you if you've been paying attention to it. Our critics are not always right, but they are accurate enough to bring reproach on everyone else. So back to Donald Miller. He said someone has remarked that if Protestantism ever dies with a dagger in its back, the dagger will be the Protestant sermon. Now, I'm not going to waste time convincing you that I don't think I'm a Protestant. I'm as Baptist as anybody you've ever met. Sometimes when someone says something, you have to understand what they mean when they say it and where they're coming from. This guy was a Presbyterian, so he's Protestant, right? And if the Presbyterians are lining up in protest against Rome, I'm going to see him with them. And then when we're done, I'm going to say, by the way, let me help you guys with Baptists. <laughs> that to protest them, yeah. So anyway, um, so Miller gives an example of sermonizing run amok. Okay? Here's what he says. It was based on a pencil. Yes, a pencil. It seems that the graphite or soul of a pencil is more important than the wood or the body. And a pencil has an eraser, which has something to do with your sins being blotted out. What pleased me so much was not the sermon itself, but the text. In order to give his idea a scriptural tie-in, the rector took as his text, quote, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. <laughs> Which gave, a, which, which gave a delightful picture of Pilate in his toga chewing his eraser on the end of a modern lead pencil or even cranking a pencil sharpener. How about the text, Jesus went a little farther? That means he walked further, farther, 
right? That's what it means. But I'm going to preach a sermon of, boy, we need to do a little more. Amen. We need to go a little farther in prayer. We need to go a little farther. That's not preaching the Bible. I don't care what you say. If you think that's preaching the Bible, then you've never learned what it means. Well, ain't it true? That, just because it's true doesn't mean you're preaching the Bible. It's astounding to me that that's offensive to people. It's staggering that that is controversial. And it's not all that controversial in this group, but there are circles not far from here. If I said what I just said, 80% of the preachers in the room would be lit. They would be beside themselves, and it would take everything I've got to get them on board with me by the end of the lecture. And wouldn't be able to do it because they're entrenched in defense of their methodology. So it's my conviction that there's a need for our men, independent Baptist preachers, to determine to preach the Bible and only the Bible. Right. There needs to be a revival of that. Anybody who doesn't like that, I don't care. Anybody who takes an opposition to me on that, I'm opposed to them. Independent Baptists need to commit and determine to preach the Bible and only the Bible. So, well, sometimes, everybody loves exceptions, don't they? Women, liberals, and preachers who are trying to defend their bad methods all love exceptions. They drive everything to the margins of every conversation. Well, what about, don't you think there's a time when a pastor should have to get up? I think there's a time when a pastor can do a, a, pastor can do a lot of things. It's just not preaching when he does it. It's not biblical preaching. What about 9-11? When, you know, after 9-11, did you just stay in your series? Or it, Is that seriously your question? Is that seriously what we're trying to do is make sure we don't mess up after 9-11? I will say this. You know what I think every church needed after 9-11? The Bible. They've got, the, the, they've got the, the talking heads on Fox News. Now they've got more than that. They've got every kind of podcast and social media influencer on the planet. And, 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 and if those don't work, listen to Alex Jones. He'll get you straight. His job being They don't need you to get up and rehash Ben Shapiro. And, and look, you don't understand Jordan Peterson, so stop trying to be Jordan Peterson. <laughs> You understand, I love all that stuff, but when I get in the pulpit, I'm getting the pulpit to preach the Bible. Right. If Nick Saban said, I want you to come down and speak to the Alabama team, and you know this is a secular university, you can't get up and turn into an evangelist, but come and talk to them about how to live your best life and how to get the most out of life. <laughs> I'd go do it. And I'd squeeze a little something in there somewhere, but I'd go do what he asked me to do, and I'd meet all the players, and it'd be a fun trip, and all that, but I wouldn't tell people I preached. Because unless you're explaining and applying this, you're not preaching. All right. Often the pulpit needs to be rescued from its friends before it's defended against its enemies. And that's where we're at. Convictions worth holding demand candor in their expression. And I'm going to be candid to, in this session. This is not sarcasm at this point. I mean everything I'm about to say the way I'm going to say it. There's a story that involves a scene where a man named Henry Weston 
was a great 19th century Baptist preacher, was preaching with D.L. Moody, uh, and D.L. Moody was on the same platform, and Weston is preaching, and he says something uh, in his sermon that caused Moody to mumble, there goes one of my sermons. And he asked him what he meant by that, I guess, from what I gathered from reading the story. In the midst of the sermon, Moody, or he asked Moody what, what he meant. And Moody simply replied that another one of his sermons had just been eliminated through better interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> um, a willingness to change, to repent, to turn, to correct your error is a mark of Christian integrity. Right? And we've all heard people preach, I tell you what, I don't change, I'm not changing. I agree with that if we're saying I'm not going to change my commitment to the truth, right? But if what we mean is I'm locking my heels in the way that I see is best, even if someone shows me it's not best, that's not strength, that's not integrity, that's not admirable, that's not leadership, that's arrogance. 1644, the first London Confession of Particular Baptist said this. Watch this. We confess that we know but in part. And that we are ignorant of many things which we desire and seek to know. And if any shall do us that friendly part to show us from the word of God that we see not, we shall have cause to be thankful to God and to them. Isn't that something? That's the doctrine of mutability. God is unchanging. We are not. And uh, we don't know all things. We confess that we know in part and we're ignorant of many things. But thank God for someone who shows us the better way. By the way, starting with that attitude takes a lot of pressure off of you, right? And, and if this podcast is played and somebody wants to take me to task on social media, I can just go listen to what they say. And I'll, I can say one of a few things. Well, I think you're wrong. This is where I'm at. Thanks for the input. <laughs> Or I could say, you know what? You're exactly right. I didn't really mean to come across that way. Here's what I meant to say. Here's why I said it that way. Thank you for challenging me. And then, of course, I'm going to say horrible things about them <laughs> that I'm not going to put on social media. You know what I mean? And I can say those things. Or I could just flat out say, you know what? I was wrong. I, I got that wrong. And try to make it clear right on the platform, right on social media. I got that wrong. That was... Thank you for bringing that to my attention. That's it. There's nothing else for them to say at that point. But we're so scared to death of being wrong. We're not perfect. The Bible's perfect. Our interpretation is not perfect. The Bible's perfect. If I understood everything that was in that book, then I would know that the one who wrote it had no more sense than I do. It's a lifelong passion to know God and know His truth and to understand it better and to communicate it uh, with clarity and lucidness. Now let's determine to avoid this proverbial dagger in our backs, all right? Let's improve and let's determine to preach the Bible. That's what we're working on. Let's determine we're going to preach the Bible. Let's get a fresh vigor about this matter that we're going to prepare to preach the Bible on Sunday. It doesn't have to be the perfect sermon, just the right text, just the right idea, just the right sermonic construction for the hour because God is using me to bring reform to the world. Come on, man. <laughs> Preach the Bible. 
preach it well, and God is capable in his providence to bring together the man and the moment and the message when he needs to. But very often the sermon that you thought was awesome didn't do half what you thought it did. And many times the one that you thought was bad that you struggled through and felt you were slogging through a swamp of meaningless expression is something that God used to do great things in people's hearts, right? And it's often the meat and potatoes. It's the daily grind. It's the shift in toil. But fundamentalists are drunk on the big moment. They are obsessed with that crusading, big conference, big sermon moment, and they want every Sunday to be their time to shine. And I'm telling you, that will put you in a jam. You want to shine, preach the Bible. The Bible should shine. And you'll get in some of the glow. What I mean by that is, if you commit years of labor to preaching the Bible, you will reap the blessing of that. God will see to it. Okay? And uh, years ago, I mean way back when I met, I met um, and I'm going to say his name because I, I, I've already said, I'm going to quote everybody, everybody from Pee Wee Herman to Prince Edward, and I don't care. All right? So um, I went to hear Pete Ruckman years ago, and I didn't go to his school, and he never preached for me, so technically I don't suppose you could call me a Ruckmanite, I don't, I don't think, but if believing the Bible... I believe in every word in that book right there in the English. If that makes me a Ruckmanite, then whatever. How's that? Is that clear? <laughs> so I went to hear him preach, and afterwards I asked his, I just asked him advice. I said, what advice would you give to a young preacher? Now, I know some of you would not ask advice from a less than perfect man, but sometimes I do. <laughs> and so I asked his advice, and he said, and I asked him the same advice twice, by the way, it, it, you know, years in between. And the first time, this is what he said. He said, he said, well, are you married? I said, yes, sir. And he said, did you go to school? I said, yes, sir. I went to Hiles Anderson. He said, well, he said, uh, how old are you? And I said, I'm 30. He said, well, just, just feed the sheep. That's what I do, feed the sheep. If you feed the sheep, they'll feed you. That was it right there. You feed the sheep. And they'll feed you. But too many preachers are worried about getting fed. Mm. Worry more about feeding the sheep, right? <laughs> worry more about caring for them, teaching and preaching the Word of God. And the glow, the blowback will come. I asked him the same question many years later. He didn't know I was the same guy, I don't think. He could have. He's not exactly, he wasn't exactly stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? He could have known. But this time I was a little older. Ask him what advice he'd give a young preacher. He said, How old are you? And I told the story wrong earlier. This time I was 30. I said, I'm, I'm 30. And he, and, he, and he said, and he looked at me for the first time. He, other, he was looking down, you know, like this. And then I said, I'm 30. He looked at me and said, well, you're going to have to figure it out one now, shouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I should. I just laughed. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> and so you know what he was doing? He kind of sensed that I was trying to get a, a sound bite out of it. You know what I mean? And he wasn't going to play my games. And when I was in Bible college, we were not so, we were kind of forbidden to go hear. We weren't forbidden to hear him, but we couldn't get any credit for for hearing him, right? In a particular class, and so me and some guys kind of snuck over to hear this controversial Pete Ruckman. And so one of my buddies had an NIV, 
And we guys were getting their Bible signed. And he walked up and just opened it up where it said, you know, New International Version. And he just, he just hand, handed it to Pete Ruckman to sign the NIV. And Dr. Ruckman took it and he just signed it. Peter S. Ruckman, 666, and gave it back to him. <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. All right. I'm probably the only guy in the world who will quote John MacArthur and Pete Ruckman positively in the same lecture. All right? And so that's fun. Number one, the crux of the matter. Let's get to the crux of the matter. And we're going to talk first about uh, bad definitions. Bad definitions is, is part of our problem here. It's a huge problem here. But you know, sometimes with bad definitions, there's an agenda driving the effort to define. Right? We call those straw men. So we build a straw man that we can easily knock down and we move on dismissing our adversary. We independents do that all the time. I guess everybody does it, but I know my circle. Do it all the time. You preach expositionally. Well, sometimes we preach through a book of the Bible on Wednesday nights. That, I didn't, that's not what I ask you. I ask you if you preached expositionally. Say, you know, we're headed there, so we're going to get there. But so there's an assumption there that the definition of exposition is preaching through a book of the Bible. That's the assumption, which is a straw man. Of course, that's not the only way to preach, and you don't have to preach that way, but when you build that up as a straw man, it's easy to dismiss it and move on. Somebody calls us a legalist. What do we say? We're not, I'm not a legalist. I don't add works to grace for salvation. Well, that's a truncated definition. There's a whole lot more to legalism than simply addressing salvation. But if you reduce the definition to that, then you win the argument without any meaningful exchange at all, without ever having to say, you know what, you got a good point there. We might be a bit much right there. We might be missing the mark over here. But if you dismiss them, you don't have to have any positive exchange with somebody you disagree with. And then throw in some radical separation, you shouldn't even be talking to them anyway. <laughs> Block them. Get back in that echo chamber and just stay right in here all the time. Marmarnium and America. Right in here. Right? <laughs> okay. The most popular misdefinition of expositional preaching is preaching through a book of the Bible or, here's another one, preaching verse by verse. As if expositors read a verse, explain, read a verse, explain, read a verse, explain, and that's all there is to exposition. Well, who wouldn't object to that? But I will say this. That would be a lot better than Jesus went a little farther and then listing everything you think needs more effort and calling that Bible preaching. <laughs> Right? Or the, or the text where they threw out four anchors. I'm going to preach on four anchors tonight. Well, we need anchors to hold us in the storm. Amen? Hey, we need the anchor of the Bible, number one. That's not preaching that text. That's not what that text is talking about. That is not what it's dealing with. Uh, the best one ever. The easiest one there is to use any way you want to use it. Is there not a cause? 
<laughs> is there not a cause for the family? Amen. Boy, we did you just say whatever you want to say? Is there not a cause for faith? Amen. We need faith. We need family. Is there not a cause for football on Saturdays? Amen. It'd make a man out of a boy. Come on. I've heard things just that ridiculous. It's not Bible preaching. I don't have any problem preaching. Is there not a cause? But there was actually a cause in the text. <laughs> That was David's cause, and that cause has within it timeless, eternal truth that should be preached right there. We should not take that as a proof text to allegorize the David-Goliath motif and apply it to anything anybody wants to apply it to, and we become little more than the Dr. Phil or Oprah Winfrey or some other positive-thinking public speaker. It's a TED talk. It's not Bible preaching. Preachers are not as good as the comedians at comedy. We're not as good as the, the acting as actors. We're not as good at coaching as coaches. We're not qualified to be psychotherapists. We are preachers of the gospel, preachers Amen. of the word of God. And in that area, if we are well prepared, we can feed anybody who shows up. No advocate of expository preaching is beating the drum for reading a verse and explaining it and moving to that. That's not what they're calling for. Standalone sermons preclude the possibility of preaching through the Bible, but they do not preclude exposition. Follow that? So when you say preaching through a book of the Bible is exposition, then you're saying if you're invited to someone's church to preach on a Tuesday night slot, that exposition is out of the question because you can't preach through a book of the Bible in one throw. Now obviously you can generalize, but you know what I'm saying. Theoretically, if exposition requires preaching through the Bible systematically, then you can't do it in a standalone sermon. And I'm saying that's ridiculous. You most certainly can preach expositionally in a standalone sermon. So we have a disconnect here in our definitions. Does that make sense? All right? So we're going to where we're going to go, right? Right now I'm just trying to talk about the bad definitions. One can preach a single expositional sermon. Exposition does not require that you preach a prolonged series. Exposition does not have to be boring, dry, Lacking propositional features. If it's done well, it'll be the opposite. Okay? <clears throat> now that's part of the problem. Preaching expositionally and doing it well is pretty difficult. And that's where a lot of guys end up taking the easy route to exposition, which amounts to reading a verse and explaining, reading a verse and explaining, reading a verse. See what I mean? So we, we want to do the better thing and preach the Bible, but we don't know how to go the extra mile and, and labor to construct better sermons. That's what I want to try to help, help you do. And it seems arrogant, but I'm just sharing with you things I've gathered, okay? That may be a help. All right, so those are bad definitions. That's addressing bad definitions. Let's address bad descriptions. Another bit of bad misinformation about exposition involves the contrived policy of some nebulous or arbitrary number of verses that must be used from the text for it to be considered exposition. 
okay? Andrew W. Blackwood, he wrote the, a very classic work called The Preparation of Sermons. And in that he said, quote, an expository sermon here means one that grows out of a Bible passage longer than two or three verses. Now, Blackwood has a great book and he has good stuff to say, but that is based upon nothing but opinion. All right, Merrill Unger said, objecting to this kind of homiletical pedantry, when if a clear, unconfused definition is to be arrived at, the valid criterion, it would seem, is not the length of the portion treated, whether a single verse or a larger unit, but the manner of treatment. So whether or not it's expository has nothing to do with how long the passage is that you're addressing, but everything to do with what you do with it when you address it. The manner of treatment. How you treat the scripture. Jerry Vine said uh, the same thing. He was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville for a long time. Probably one of the star conservative Southern Baptists. I mean, he's one of the most conservative. Very little difference between him and many of the old school fundamentals. But Vine said some homileticians have defined exposition by the length of the given text. Exposition, however, is not determined by the length of the passage. Exposition is not a sermon form, but a process by which the words of God are communicated. Vine said that. I'm not making this stuff up. Vine said exposition is not a sermon form, but a process by which the words of God are communicated. Can y'all see the picture I'm painting right now? That a lot of our brethren have dismissive, never read a book on the subject attitudes about exposition. They say wrong things about it, cast against the backdrop of these guys who've read everything about it. And there are many times when I think these evangelical guys and seminarians are wrong, but it's obvious to me when they're wrong, and it's obvious to me why they're wrong. But in this case... It's not a matter of are you an evangelical or are you a militantly separated fundamentalist. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with what is your agenda. And can you understand a definition? I don't think fundamentalists are stupid. I think fundamentalists are entrenched sometimes. Follow me? We would be more effective preaching one verse in context and communicating the meaning of the verse as the author, the Holy Spirit, intended making application and appealing to the listener to respond with obedience than to utilize many verses to perpetuate some contrived personal agenda. Say, where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? Well, he was there when this was written. It was given by inspiration. There's where the Holy Spirit works right there. You want God to work? Preach that. Are you going to tell me that you would get... Come on. So I, I can preach the Bible faithfully and preach this text. And you're going to tell me that the Holy Spirit wanted me to preach a different text. So I missed the boat on the text selection and somehow I'm going to get penalized in the fruit that it's produced. Are y'all, do y'all see how weird that is? Do you see how impossible that is? That's why we live in this nebulous 
self-defeating, self-loathing world of Christian mysticism that makes us feel like if I would have been more in tune with the Holy Spirit, I would have found the right text. If I would have been more clever and more faithful, I would have put the sermon together better. And if I would have preached it with more holiness, God help us for, you know, taking our family to the amusement park. That was probably too worldly. And now I'm just worldly and I preach with no power. You understand the nervous breakdown a preacher can have doing that decade after decade? I'm not making fun of holiness. I'm making fun of calling something holiness that is extra. Why do you think people in our circles do that? Do you think it's an element of pride to make themselves sound more spiritual than they really are? Because that is something that I think, I think that's personally that's part of the reason that pastors do that because they think it makes them look more spiritual. All right. Okay, good question. My sarcasm would have you think that I have a great deal of disrespect for all of the independent Baptists. And I keep saying I'm one of them. And I'm going to be one of them when I die. I love them. Okay? But these guys don't mind busting our skull wide open over some little something they disagree with with us. But when, when I push back on this stuff, all of a sudden I have a bad spirit. Really? You just stomped a woman for wearing pants for 20 minutes. Right? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the issue of whether or not a woman should wear pants. You can work that out. Y'all can go argue that in the woods over there and beat each other <laughs> senseless. I don't care. What I'm saying is, these guys are real sensitive when you get on them and real abrasive when they're getting on you. Now, to go to your question, I love our brethren, and I think that, yes, there are some that have learned how to play, how to game the system, right? to make themselves look holy. And all of that leadership mystique, I gotta make sure everybody think I'm a man of God. So I gotta make sure they refer to me with the right title. And if somebody says my first name, well, I've just been disrespected and the temple has been violated. You know what I mean? And I've gotta, you know, all that leadership stuff and I gotta strut around with everything buttoned down, tucked in, shined up, because I'm a man of God. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. And so, yeah, they game the system with all of that carnal nonsense. But I think most of the problem is not that. I think most of the problem is all of us want to be holy. We don't want to jeopardize our ministry with some mistake. And some of us are too neurotic about it. And it torments us. All right? And it's very difficult because any change you make, Seems like you're caving in to the pressure to slide down the slippery slope to solve, right? I'm not sliding down any slippery slope. I'm just enjoying this amazing natural beach with my family. It, this is not a Baywatch video. We're, we're just enjoying the ocean, you freak. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I don't have to go to bike, Biker Week at Daytona. <laughs> Y'all follow me? But there's so much judgmental stuff and we get all that in our head. Yeah. I remember one time having a problem at a wedding. I was a young pastor. And I mishandled the whole thing. But I didn't think I did. 
I thought I was facing the opposition of the devil. I had a family member get her feelings hurt, and looking back, she didn't understand what I was doing, and I completely missed how important her role as the coordinator of this wedding was to her. Right? Looking back, I should have just said, look, here's the way I usually do it. You tell me where you want to plug me in, and that's where I'll do my thing. Everything would have been easy. But no, I had to be a man of God. I took everything I learned at Hiles about how to have a wedding and it was imposing it on these small town Alabama people. And Hiles did it his way because he was busy, like beyond your, like he was like Nick Saban, Donald Trump busy. You understand? He didn't have time to come in and work through somebody's wedding preferences. If you got him to do a wedding at the First Baptist Church, he had a coordinator that would tell you what your wedding was going to do. Y'all follow me? And then Hiles just came in according to his schedule. He knew the people would go do the thing, and they were great weddings if that's what you wanted. And then he went on, but I tried to impose that on little small-town people. There was no point in it. I wasn't that busy. I could work through all the details and let my family member get the juice and the attention for being the coordinator, but I, I mishandled it. All right, now watch this. This is very personal. I hate to even tell this story, but maybe it'll be a blessing to you. I'm a young pastor now. So I'm on my way the next week to make a hospital visit. We just had this dust up at a family wedding. And I mean, I'm just sick to my stomach. And so I'm on my way to the hospital, and I can't get this off my head. And, and I, I'm, every sermon I've ever heard is running through my mind, right? And so I pull off the side of the interstate. And I'm, I'm in the weeds off the side of the interstate on my hands and knees praying, you know, for God to just give me his power. But what does this have to do with the power of God? Nothing. I offended some people at a wedding rehearsal. And I thought somehow in my mind the devil's opposing the ministry of what we need the power of God and this thing's got to take off. In my mind, if God would pour out his blessing... People would see how great I am. And the ministry would take off. You see the anguish in that hour right there, that moment? And so I'm pray I'm wanting this Jack Hiles praying on his father's grave experience to happen. You know, if you've ever heard that, Jimmy said that's that's when you got the power of God or whatever. D.L. Moody's story about the two old ladies of Wall Street telling them they're praying for him, and now all of a sudden everything's different. You know, you've been preaching lame sermons before, no results. Get the power of the Holy Ghost, preach the same lame sermons, and now there's results. <laughs> I'm being a little sarcastic right there, but that's kind of thinking. So I was in emotional turmoil because I had my head all messed up with this stuff. Back to your question. So I do think there are many young men out there who are trying to do the best that they can, right? And they've got all of these hang-ups, legalistic hang-ups, one thing's worldly, one thing's not, right? If you watch Louis, if you read Louis L'Amour and watch John Wayne movies, that's fine. That's manly, that's an old west, let her rip. The second you put a tune to it, now it's evil. <laughs> I don't care what you think about music, think whatever you want to think. I'm just saying, we're real choosy about this stuff. Write a poem to your wife about romance, and it's awesome. Let Frank Sinatra sing it to a tune, now it's right straight out of the pit of hell. Oh, come, on. come on, man. Can you tone it down a little bit? You see what I mean? 
So I, I think that there's a lot of well-meaning people who can't sort out legal. They think if you oppose legalism, you're opposing standards of holiness. Not, not at all. We're just suggesting that if you're going to make it a standard, if you're going to make it something that you set up as a determining mark between spiritual and not spiritual, pleasing God and not pleasing God, it has to be biblical. It has to be in the Bible. You can't just take love not the world and use that as a bludgeon for every issue. The text means something. The world is defined in the text. Lust of the flesh. Right? Lust is an inordinate desire. It's an illicit desire. It's not wrong for a young man to want a wife. That's not sinful. And anybody that makes you think it is, is a wacko. It's not sinful for you to want a wife. It's not sinful for you to like girls. And praying for a girl isn't going to get you one. <laughs> Talking to them and going on dates with them will get you one. Well, what if you get the wrong one? Well, you should have already had that worked out. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Start right there. You see what I'm saying? It's the abject, clear truth of the Scripture that keeps you out of the weeds, not some, you know, mystical thing. Somewhere out there. See what I mean? <laughs> it's not wrong to want a wife. It is, however, wrong to want your neighbor's wife. See? So I'm not saying, and you're not going to want her mother, so just get, it, get that straight, right? <laughs> so I'm not saying that we don't preach against sin. I'm saying that legalism comes when we take human man's ideas and policies and elevate them to an equivalent level with the Scripture. Right? You know, if you go to a bluegrass festival, that's worldly. Some of those songs they <laughs> sing are secular. Uh, okay, how about the symphony? Oh, that's good. That's elevated music. That's classical, wonderful stuff. Is it? Mm. Have you read about Tchaikovsky? Mm. Are you familiar with a guy named Wagner? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yep. That's all a bunch of malarkey. So I'm not saying that there are no parameters to music. I'm just saying you don't have to make all my decisions for me. And I don't care what you think about all of mine. When we preach, we preach the Bible. Guys from the South think the Holy Ghost is associated with a certain style of worship music. Mm -hmm. right. If it's not... That feels like Holy Ghost to me. I mean, that feels like church to me. To you guys, it feels like, well, they're emphasizing the wrong beat on that. That's not in the Bible either. You just heard it from Frank Garlock or somebody went to Bob Jones. You didn't get that from the Bible. You're welcome. <laughs> he got one time get up in the service and said boy we sing good music around here amen thank God for that choir we don't do that Amy Grunt and Sandy Fatty none of those gayfer songs amen hallelujah and he sat down and the choir got up and sang it is finished the battle is over it's a gayfer song <laughs> come on and there was one song that went around forever in, in fundamental circles Every time you go to me, they would sing that song, and it was a it was a, a contemporary song, but it was a good one, right? One got by, <laughs> one got by. It was a good one, and it sounded okay in their circles because they instead of singing it, uh, 
I bowed on my knees and cried holy. Because you can't fall off a note because that's sinful. <laughs> they would just change it and say, I bowed on my knees and cried holy. Right? Now it's spiritual. <laughs> then we come to find out the guy that wrote is a homosexual. Well, he's just as gay if you sing it countryfied or sing it round mouth style. Either way. Say, so, well, we've got to be careful. Our young kids start liking that worldly music. Let me help you something. They already like it. <laughs> Their flesh likes it. So be reasonable and work with them. You might actually gain some ground with them. Right? So that's a ooh, way too much time trying to answer that question. I'm, not, I, I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to sound like I'm against real separation, holiness, standards, which is not in the Bible, is an effort to establish a guardrail that keeps you from violating your biblical convictions. That's what standards do. And I believe in that. I'm for that. But you can make a religion out of man-made institutional standards if you're not careful. Right? When I went to Hiles Anderson, not only did you have to have your hair cut, but you had to have it tapered so you couldn't game the system and comb your hair back over your ears and it was actually long. Can't do that. Can't do that because then it becomes worldly. Even though two-thirds of the chapel speakers did it. Can't, can't do that. It's got to be tapered. Well, I get that. That's an institutional policy. Nobody said, including Brother Hiles, if your hair's not tapered, you don't have the Holy Ghost. Nobody said that. But students would begin to adopt that hang-up. So I can remember guys coming to chapel and if their hair was a little full, you know, guys would have an attitude about it. Well, he needs a haircut. A haircut? He looks like a Mormon. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> but you see, we take man-made institutional things and then it becomes associated with our group. So then we start stomping and ridiculing and doubling down people outside of our group. And we're not preaching the Bible. It's just all a bunch of malarkey. And so I think some of it is the pride thing, but I think in others... It's regular guys like us who don't want to be worldly. We, we don't want to ridicule and make light of holy things. But holy, if holiness was all standards, if it was all about how you dress and, and, and how you look and what music you listen to and whether or not you go to the movies, if that's all that holiness involved, if that's what it was essentially, then the Amish are holy. <laughs> holiness is, is a godlikeness. It's a, being, it's a transformation into the image of Christ, right? It's Christ-likeness produced from the inside out. And holiness is certainly going to produce a difference in how a Christian looks on the outside. But maybe not to every extreme that appeases you. Mm. Right? You say, well, what I'm supposed to do as a pastor? Two things. Number one, make it clear when an opinion is an opinion. This is our a policy. I don't have a verse that says you can't wear pants in the choir. But that's our policy because we want to have, we're going to draw a line somewhere. So I'm asking ladies, if you sing in the choir, wear a dress and, and you know, maybe not a miniskirt. Let's make it a dress. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So you have, you have a policy there. Make it clear that I don't have a verse for this. This is just it's going to be our policy. And I do have this verse that says, let him that have the rule over you. Obey them that have the rule over you. And in this area, I have the rule over you. I am the pastor. I'm the overseer. I'm setting the policy 
for what we do in the choir doesn't mean you're a bad Christian if you don't wear that dress to Walmart. It just means when you're in the choir, we ought to look the best we can. If anybody doesn't understand that, it's their problem. Mm -hmm. Second thing is, uh, I think that we uh, avoid we avoid that pitfall by um, well, I lost my train of thought there, so we'll come back to it. Um, spend a lot of time talking about that because it's a problem in our circles. I know you guys feel it. Um, there's that old saying, never move a fence until you remember what the fence was there for. I, I, I agree with all that thinking, okay? So I'm not asking anybody to lower their standards, but I'm telling you, my kids, we had a way of doing things when I was bringing my kids up, and I began to sense in the latter years of their teen years, you know, that maybe I could have done it differently, at least in a few areas, but I didn't change. Then, this is just my opinion by the way I did it. I didn't change it because I didn't want to lead the church one way. All these years, and as soon as my kids get there and have to live it, then change it. I didn't do that. So all the time my kids were at home, we stayed the course. Later, I made an adjustment in an area, personally. It's not a huge change, but it was an adjustment because I was never the entire time a pastor convinced of this one particular issue. I, I played ball with it because it was so important to our people, right? To our circles. Yep. Now, I've realized I don't care. <laughs> you know what I'm I'm going to do what I want to do, and they can do what they want to do. And uh, can, you, you figure out after a while if your motivation is pleasing them, making these people happy, you still won't make them happy. Mm -hmm. So you might as well make the guy you look at in the mirror happy, at least for five minutes. So, All right, let's move on. Uh, man, I, does anybody have a question? I need to clarify anything. I'm not trying to disrespect any kind of standards because I believe in separation and holiness, but I think we need to understand it scripturally. And legalism is a problem. If you're always wondering, well, I don't know if I'm right with God, I probably watched one too many episodes of my favorite show on Netflix last night, and boy, I'm just, you know what I mean? You read something about Adoniram Judson and how he suffered, so you've got to make yourself suffer. You know what I mean? It's just legalistic, weird stuff. And it's, it's dangerous. It's not necessary. You don't have to be miserable to be a good Christian. You don't have to hate life. Enough suffering will come your way without you having to go find more of it. Okay? You don't need to flog myself? You do not need to flog yourself. We will do the flogging for you. We're eating at noon, right? Right. Man, this is taking me longer than I thought. Let's go to lunch. We'll come back and dig in. Love you guys. Seriously, one more chance. Any questions about this? What um, did you change? Sir? What did you change? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs>